up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. So they ask you to think about your intention. And I thought, oh, I want to be healed of this gay thing. And um, just as I had the thought that these two French guys, topless, in a pair of shorts, came over and they were the people who were at the side of you dipping you into the water. Well, that takes me very nicely to another listener question. This is from Louise. Um, she says, Owen, I'm caught in the past, reliving it every day. How do I break the cycle? This has been wearing me down for 16 years. Yeah. Can you help? Um, another question for you from Anne. One simple exercise to cope with worry and anxiety, please. Can you be in therapy for too long and how, do you, how long do you need to be in therapy for it to work? So the first person you came out to was an Irish Catholic nun. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's not how it should be. You know, it's... <laughs> And welcome to a special midweek episode of White Wine Question Time. Now, normally every Tuesday we revisit some of our vintage conversations and take a trip into the White Wine Question Time cellar. However, this week I'm resisting the old to bring you something brand new, a guest who might just change your life. A renowned psychotherapist with over 25 years experience in physical and mental health and a Sunday Times bestselling author. In this episode, we get to know more about his own story before putting some of your questions to him, hopefully giving you a chance to access and tap into one of the very best therapists in the business, free of charge and away from the long, long wait so many of you are up against as you try to access help for your mental health via the NHS. So who is he? Well, he was born and raised in Ardoyne, Belfast, during the Troubles as a young gay Catholic. His childhood was defined, he says, by bombs, bullets and bullying. And he sought solace in music by learning how to play the piano, which he's incorporated as a therapy throughout his life and with great effect in his brilliant TED Talk. Do go and watch it once you've had a chance to listen to this episode. Now, after leaving school, he took an unexpected turn into the priesthood, which saw him lead a group on a pilgrimage to Lourdes, where he decided he would attempt to heal himself from homosexuality. Fortunately, his attempts had, well, quite the opposite effect when two shirtless French men arrived to dip him in the water, and the trip turned out to be a turning point in his life, marking the beginning of his healing journey towards self-acceptance. After three years in the priesthood in his early 20s, he realised that well, the requirement for celibacy was a little beyond him and he left. Moving to London where he began training to be a palliative care nurse and he fell in love with his work which enabled him to help his patients to die whilst providing him with a wake-up call that gave him a whole new perspective on living. Through his work as a nurse he began to see the huge need for emotional as well as medical care and via the NHS began studying psychotherapy as a master's which took his career in a whole new direction quickly rising through the ranks to become a clinical lead in NHS mental health. Alongside this work, he often facilitated mental well-being sessions and talks, which led him on a journey to becoming an author after it was suggested that he write a book, something he thought he'd never do until, well, way beyond retirement. He sent an email to a publisher who invited him in for a pitch and he was offered a book deal the next day. A bidding war ensued and multiple publishers put their names forward to bring first his debut, Ten to Zen, to the market, which became an instant bestseller, followed by Ten Times Happier in 2020. And now his third book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, which has given him a hat-trick of bestsellers. I can't wait for you to tap into his rather brilliant brain. So let's dial him in, shall we? It's Owen O'Kane. How are you? 
Hi, Kate. What a lovely introduction. Was I, it all correct? I, I always feel, yeah, it was all correct. You know, I always get, I always feel a bit funny when someone does an introduction and they start go, going through all of the, all of the true actually, but it's, it's quite weird, isn't it? When you sort of get a, a fast forward of your own life and you start to hear all of the key events. So it's, um, I say this often to our guests, it's kind of a therapy in itself. In as much as um, one guest um, said they wanted to keep that intro um, recorded on their phone and just play it to themselves every day as as a kind of like a manifestation, like, I'm okay, it's all good. <laughs> I know, it's funny, I, I did an interview on Irish TV last week, I was over, and it's always really interesting when you go back home to do stuff, because it's a, it's a totally different ballgame altogether, and yeah. I guess there was a big part of me when I was growing up and stuff, it was always about keeping off radar. It was always about not being seen, not being noticed. And there was a real culture as well about don't show off, don't don't put yourself out there, no one likes anyone who shows off, or mm. that sort of mentality. So it's really interesting for me is when I, when I do any stuff that's kind of using any sort of platform, I've always got this kind of whispering voice in the back of my head about how big or how loud you can be or not being too show-offy or, you know, it, it's ridiculous, but it's really interesting every single time I do an event, whether it's a talk or, and I do loads of these things, as you know, um, there's always this battleground between the old world that will pop in every now and then and then just kind of remind myself, actually, no, this is, you know, this is my life today and this is what I do. And I love what I do, genuinely, wholeheartedly love the work and I love what I do. But um, it's fascinating, isn't it, that we're always kind of, we're always kind of wrestling between the old and the new, aren't we? Well, I mean, full transparency, you and I are friends, which in so many um, respects has been very annoying to me because if we weren't, you would be my therapist of choice, hands (laughs) down. Talk to me about life when we first got to know each other. I think you and Mark had not long been together. And Mark, by the way, is your husband. Mark, yeah. So so Mark and I, I mean, back in the, I met you years ago, I think in your X Factor days, I think I met you. Because Mark was my boss. So Mark was working for ITV at the time. Yeah. Um, I think I met you a few times over the years. At I think he was working on X Factor for a while, yeah. and um, we had just overlapped at, at various things. And um, it was interesting for me because my job at the time, um, I was still in nursing, so I was working in palliative care at that time. Mm. Mark's world was very different, so he was in telly, similar world to yours, and doing all of that stuff. And I would occasionally rock up at these TV do's or gigs or whatever. Not my world whatsoever. And and I would dip in and out, but just felt very out of place and, you know, didn't didn't get it, didn't understand it at all. But I think that's why I always gravitated to you in a green room, because you look like you didn't want to be there. <laughs> it's terrible, doesn't it? But, I mean, look, I, I go along for Mark. And I, I get it. I, I never I never really got it. I genuinely didn't get it. And I kind of felt there was always just a lot of energy in the room that I, I couldn't I couldn't get involved in. You know, there was just always a lot of networking and people trying to impress each other and all of that stuff. And you're having a conversation with someone and then someone famous would walk past and they would get distracted and all of that and more. So I, I would go to, to kind of support him, but never really enjoyed it that much. So get on with my career. So our worlds are always entirely different. And then as things progressed, really, I you know, I went through my career. I think you were doing your master's then, weren't you? I was doing a master's in psychotherapy at the time. Mm. So I, I basically transitioned. I'd spent all of these years in physical health, most of it in palliative care. I did accident and emergency to kick off with and then moved in the other direction, actually. So I went from really intense, high energy work. 
And then I was interested in working with the dying. Um, and I think that partly came from the couple of years in priesthood. I did a placement there, and that was probably one of my favourite parts of the work, was working with people who were dying. Because people think, oh, God, that must have been really tough and depressing. And it was none of that. It was, it was really life-affirmative. And, you know, the, these people had stories and wisdom that, you know, you, there's something about when someone's facing their own mm. mortality. I want to come to this in one of my questions with you, actually, because it's something I... I really want to to explore because I know from conversations we've had previously. I mean, when you're going, when when that is your work, and then you find yourself, you know, holding a canopy in the corner of a green room at the X Factor, <laughs> listening to all of this other stuff. That it must just sound like such stuff and incongruent nonsense you to you. Do you know, you know look, I, I, every, everyone has their purpose, everyone has their job. Sure. I think there's a role for everything. People who entertain have a function and they have a really important function because they create entertainment, they create distraction and that in itself is therapeutic. So I can never get into that one is better than the other. I just, I don't, I think everyone has different skill sets. I guess for me, it was, a, a, it was almost like I didn't buy into any of the games that would go on. So, and I guess when you're with people who are mm. dying and they're facing, you know, the end of their life and you're working with them and you're working with the family and you're trying to help them really come to terms with what's happening, but actually helping them live while they're dying, it creates a real challenge. And of course, for yourself personally, then what I think's a bad day, you know, if I'm moaning about work or having to change my mortgage or the car needs repaired or Mark's pissed me off, <laughs> there was something about... It would really kickstart perspective very, very quickly. So mm. My real problems were diluted quite quickly. So, I mean, that, that in itself is a therapy, isn't yeah, it? That was in itself. So I, it was quite good. It was, you know, it was good at giving me a wake-up call around perspective. Yeah. So I, I've kind of always used those kind of 10 years as part of my work. And 10 years, by the way, is a stretch, right? That's a long, long time. For me, it was probably enough. I think there is, there's a, I think there is a shelf life, you know, in, in terms of how, how long. Some people do it longer, but for me, I remember getting to a point where... Um, I think it was a really odd thing one day. This is going to sound really bizarre. I was in a park and um, I could smell flowers in the park. And I can remember it reminded me of we had a relative's room where we used to bring people in to often break bad news. And I can remember being in a park one day and the smell of the flowers reminded me of the relative's room. And it was the only thing I could get out. It was the only thing that was dominant in my head. And I remember that was a moment when I thought enough. Very telling. So when the NHS came to you, I remember... Um, you explaining this to me and maybe you can put some meat on the bones of this. So they came to you and said, you know, obviously, we really value you as they should because you are, you know, 10 years into providing, you know, unparalleled care in the most difficult of circumstances. We'd like you to do a master's. You chose therapy, psychotherapy, and they pushed back on that, didn't they? They said, sorry, we don't see a need for it. And you had to rewrite the NHS rule book on this one which is something I would love you to just own for a minute because you're far too bashful but that's quite massive well what what happened was I went to them and I said look I'd love to do you know a lot of what we see is psychological pain and I do my best but I don't feel skilled I'm often having conversations with people where I really feel I'm out of my depth mm. and the level of distress you're dealing with is big you know and I, I'll you know I'll, I'll try hard and I'm with people and I'm sure I'm doing something valuable but I don't think it's enough 
and I'd love to do it in psychotherapy. So I went through the process and applied for it and they rejected it and they said that it wasn't... On what ground? They said that it wasn't... I'm trying to think of the exact word at the time, that it wasn't relevant enough to the to subject area and that it wasn't medical enough. So I remember yeah. there was something of that nature that it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't medical enough. And, they, and we're going back a couple of decades now, right? Yeah, so this has gone back. God, quite a while. It makes you realise how old you are, doesn't it? So old, I mean. When you have to think, when when was that? So anyway, they rejected it, and then luckily, I was going for lunch one day, and the head of education at the time, in the trust I was working for, tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, "I'm really sorry, your application was rejected." She said, "But off the record, can I make a suggestion that you appeal?" She said, "Because I think it's really valid," and she said, "But if you appeal, you're going to have to come up with a an argument why." we should we should review it so i anyway i did so i went off and i looked at all the studies i looked at all the evidence and i discovered that psychological pain as it was known at the time was prominent with about 80 percent of patients when they were transitioning from life to death or in that kind of palliative care phase and i thought so how is that not relevant or how is that not appropriate so i I put all the papers together formed my own argument appealed it and they they accepted it. So, I mean, when you look back at the kind of the energy you had, you know, when you were back in your 30s and stuff. So I then applied for a course and got on the course almost immediately, which was, you know, I normally kind of wait for a while. And I went to them and they said, oh, that's not going to, you're going to have to wait for a year or two. We, we need to approve study time. So there was another obstruction. And I got on the course and I said, I'm going to do it. I'm doing the course. So if you want me to take holidays to do the course, I'm doing it. Um, you can't stop me taking holiday, so I'm going to do it. So I really did get a bit more militant than I would normally do. Mm. I knew I had to do it. Anyway, long story short, they then had the approved study time. It changed your life, but you've also left that as an open doorway for other uh, men and women working within the NHS that want to take up those studies, right? Because you proved the case. I think so. Look, the NHS do brilliant work. You know, it's been the hardest soul of my, you know, it's been the hardest soul of my career for a long period of time. So mm. I always speak highly of the work they do. I think... You know, we need to we need to get better at looking at people more holistically. You know, we still operate from models where it's physical health, mental health. We we look at people in terms of a part of their body. You know, you go to an endocrinology department, you go to a hematologist, mm-hmm. you go to, and I can it's it's never that clear cut. It's the same in mental health. You know, no one ever rocks up just anxious. You know, never no one ever rocks up just depressed there's always a multitude of factors mm. and I think we have to get better at seeing we're, we're, we're not that straightforward really we're a complex mix of a number of things so when you're thinking about when I'm working with people I'm never just thinking about their mental health it's a whole picture it's an entire story and the two worlds merge and I guess really back back at that part of my career I saw that that the two worlds you can't you can't differentiate them and that was my inroad to to kind of prove in that in some way and and I did and I qualified used some of the therapy training and palliative care initially and then really realised that I had a real kind of I wanted to do something different and I, I'd been in physical health for a long time and I thought I want to go off and do something a bit different You're not going to say it but you realised that you were very good at this and that you should be doing that solely and helping people I'll say it for you I mean, you're an excellent therapist. I, I, do you know, look, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good, at, I'm good at my job and I think part of the reason I'm good at my job is I love, I do love the work I, you know, I think it's a privilege to do 
my job, our job, you know, people who do this work, I think it is a real privilege. But I also think as well is that when you've worked through some difficult stuff in your own life, you sort of get it. You know, there's stuff. I talk a lot about anxiety and trauma. There's two areas that I'm really interested in. And I think because my early story was very filled with a lot of anxiety and trauma. And I think there's stuff at university that they can't, they can't teach you, you know, when you've lived through trauma, when you've lived through anxiety you have a kind of inbuilt understanding of it so I guess therapeutically when you're working with someone who's struggling and they're describing stuff that to them sounds or feels very abnormal you're sort of on board with them straight away you're an empath right you have empathy I get it I totally get it and and I guess the the, the benefit that gives you is it enables you to normalise a conversation very, very quickly and I think if you can normalise a difficult situation for someone then you're halfway there totally or just even ignite a conversation. Absolutely, because then suddenly, because in you know people's worlds, most people when they walk through the door when they come into therapy, they feel that it's the most terrible thing ever. They're stuck. Or, they, or they're stuck, and I'm never going to get through this, or I'm never going to get over this, or there isn't a way forward. That's very often what you see in therapy, particularly if someone comes in a crisis period. And I guess really, you've got the. You're on the other side, really, because you you see people in therapy at all stages. You see them at the beginning when they're really stuck. Then you see them in the middle when they're kind of progressing. And then thankfully, you see people at the end of therapy where they're really beginning to reclaim their life. So I guess I have a contract with every client I work with. I don't really, I don't do sign contracts or anything. But if I meet somebody and they're hopeless or they're totally stuck, they'll come in at the beginning. And very often they'll be like, oh, it hasn't worked or I've tried it before and I, I don't see how this is. So you get all of the usual resistance. And the only contract I'll have with people is that, that they allow me at the beginning to hold on to hope. And then when they're ready, but only when they're ready, bit by bit, I'll hand that over to them. Oh. And I've never once in my career, I've never had anyone knock that back or reject it as a contract. Say, so, okay. Never heard that I, before. I think, I think there is something about that when people, mm. when you're saying to people, I know you're not feeling it at the minute, then that's totally fine. And I get why you're not feeling it. But I'm confident that things can improve. So can I, you know, can I hold on to that? Well, that builds now? trust, doesn't it? Straight away. You're like, trust me, I, I know we can do this. Yeah, but it's not like you, I'm not forcing you to do it no. today. I'm not going to convince you that you have to do it today, but I'm going to hold it. I'm, we'll, I'll keep holding it. And then when you're ready, we'll negotiate. And then, you know, it's just funny with them when you watch the progression and then you see people start to gradually wake up and come to life again, really, and, and get their life back. And that, that's, I mean, that's the incredible part of the job. But then that feeds you then for the people who walk in the door who are at the beginning of the journey feeling, oh, my God, so you've always got clients who are at different stages and I think that kind of that fuels the fire really in some way well it does for me anyway I want to talk about you and what fuels you and um, the fires that you've had to put out along the way are you ready for your first question yeah You opened your TED Talk on the piano and played before you spoke because for you, the piano has been a salvation and you very eloquently compare the necessity of major and minor chords in music and apply those to the emotions of life. So, for example, you, you've spoken before about the fact that minor chords are often what make up the difficulties in our life. Um, it might be suffering, heartbreak, loss, trauma, as opposed to the major chords, which are love, success, things going well. So I wondered if you could break down for me your own major and minor chords that have scored the music of your own life. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, the, the, the minor chords were probably, most of the minor chords were probably, I mean, been, look, there have been many. They come in and out of your life, don't they? I mean, and I can think immediately of, lo- you know, losses. I mean, I find I find losses really difficult. I don't find goodbyes easy. Losing my mum was incredibly difficult. She died young. She was 57. And, and I found that really difficult at the time. I was in my my early 30s when mum died and I remember that period being incredibly difficult because mm-hmm. just the enormity of the loss and trying to get my head around it and continue to work was a, was a challenge because I was in palliative care at the time oh and gosh. So, so trying to do the both so I remember that being a really difficult minor chord losing the dog a couple of years ago you met our mm-hmm. old dog that threw me more than I ever expected you know that the loss of a pet could be as significant as the loss of a human. It's a family member, right? Uh, yeah, for me, I remember I, I did. I was, you know, before I got a dog, I, I didn't really get animals. Really, I didn't really get the connection. And then when the dog died, that was I think because the dog represented a lot for us. You know, we're not parents. All of our parental energy went into dogs. So that was a major. Well, that was a minor chord, but it was a major, major event. But I think a lot of the minor events were, you know, they were probably growing up. So you know, like you were talking in the introduction about. Irish, Catholic and gay. Someone joked last week and made me laugh and they said, oh, that's like the holy trinity of shame. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you aced it. You, you ticked every box. <laughs> and it was. And, you know, so I'm growing up in Northern Ireland as well. So everyone who grew up during that period when I was there will, will know what the, the anxiety and the sense of threat felt like. That was a given for most people. I guess then when you're a little gay kid and you're playing piano and you're a bit different. And so the piano really, started very young with you, didn't it? I mean, piano started started off on a, um, I was playing xylophone in primary school one day. <laughs> do you remember xylophones? You don't see them anymore, do you? They're like hen's teeth, rare. <laughs> there were a few giveaways. <laughs> but the other, yeah. kids were, the other kids were all like beating each other up at the back of the room and the teacher brought in this xylophone and, and I don't know what it was, but I was able to play it. And she said, oh, can you play any tune? And I think she said like a nursery rhyme or something and I was able to play it. And then she said to me, oh, why don't we get you to audition for music school? I didn't even know what music school was. Um, so anyway, I went back and I said to my parents, now, this was working class Belfast. We lived in a kitchen house. We didn't have money. And I went back and said, my kitchen... What is a kitchen house, just oh, for those sorry, that don't it's know? a little terrace, two, yeah. two down. Two up, two down. No garden, yeah. back, backyard. And it was in a pla- I grew up in a place called Ardoing, which is a... It was just a, the forefront, really, of all the violence. So it, was, it got the, the brunt of... You know, I think there were more people in that square radius per mile that were killed in that area than any other part of Northern Ireland at the time. So the, and when the, people say they were raised during the Troubles, what they're talking about is they're being raised through a war. During that sector, yeah. I mean, it was called the Troubles, but I mean, when you look back on it, I mean, it, it was daily war for it. wasn't an event. There was often yeah. riots going on. So that was one part of it. So there was a very heightened anxiety a lot of the time. And then, you know, being different, being a, you know, a kid who was playing piano. The other kids that I liked at school and got on with, they were doing Irish dancing. So, I mean, there were, you know, it's kind of almost like we, we kind of gelled together. We didn't even know it at the time. We didn't have language, but all the gay kids were kind of clubbing together. <laughs> and, um, it's tribes, right? You find your people. You no, know, and you know, one Christmas Eve, I, I was home in Belfast. In my year in school, the gay bar in Belfast, there were seven people in the bar from my year in school. Which no, just from your year? Just from my year. And we were all in this one gay bar years ago on Christmas Eve. And we all thought we were the only people 
in that year, you know, because you, you do, you think you're the only kid been picked on. So that, that, look, that was that was that. Oh, I hope it's different now, Owen. I hope that those people find each other much sooner. I think so, you know. But so th- those aspects were were difficult. Um, mm. Within all of that, there, my mum's brother got killed during the troubles, and that had a huge impact on everyone really and she didn't cope very well for about two three years he was shot dead you know randomly unexpectedly and they were really close so my mum fell apart really during our teenage years just trying to come to terms with all of this here so that's where the 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 bombs bullets bullying and a piano came from that was kind of that was the crux of my backstory and of course in the background of it all was religion you know we're catholic i tried to be a good person tried to be i was a very good boy though and back in those days tried really hard to be a good boy and, and fell into that role of pleasing and not upsetting people and there was just enough going on in life i just didn't want to be a bother to my parents or I didn't want to cause any trouble so I guess in the she- the kind of background shaming that was going on around sexuality and that yeah. notion because you start to wonder you start to you, teenage years you sort of know that you're different you've, you've worked it out but you don't know how to put language on it and of course I hadn't done anything about it either so but I knew part of me thought okay part of me is bad because the church were telling me that people like me are bad sinners and they're wrong and they're sinners and you haven't got you have your mind isn't developed as a 13 14 year old you know it's still developing plasticity we're still you know the brain's still learning how to function so you haven't got the ability to rationalize it and make sense of it you take it as a given so i guess really when i you know they they were the minor chords in my life but i remember making a decision that i had to get away for me i had to get out and my first i don't know if i told you this my did i tell you a story about my first therapist no and how i no I'll fast forward a bit, but I went I went into a monastery for a couple of years and, and that at the time was driven by, I think, a desire to help people. Was there some degree of running away? Unconsciously, probably, yes. Yeah, I mean, if you're feeling like, you know, it's a sin to be your authentic self, the safest place to put yourself is where you can't act on those desires, right? And that's, that's celibacy in the priesthood. Yeah, and I wouldn't have thought of it that way at the time, interestingly enough, because I hadn't come out. Had you not? Even to yourself? No, my God, not at all. I didn't come out until my sort of mid-twenties. So at that stage, I wasn't out to anyone. I was, believe it or not, straight. I had a push bisexual at one point. But I mean, generally, I was, you know, living or trying to live a very straight life. And I didn't formulate it in my head as me running away into a monastery. It was driven by, I like working with people. I don't like seeing adversity. I don't like seeing unfairness in the world. I'd grown up in a community with a church, so it felt like a natural fit, and I went in. So it was interesting. I didn't consciously to go in to hide. But then, of course, when you get in there and you start to grow up and develop and you think, I'm not sure this is the right place for me to be. And I had a brilliant director at the time, and I sat down and I talked with him about it. And he said, why don't you just go off for a year and work it out? We'll keep the door open. You know, I had a great relationship with him. And you know, I, had to, I mean, here's the other thing. I had a brilliant three years in that monastery really good bunch of people met some incredible people did amazing projects i worked on a drug project i worked in palliative care we did a homelessness project so i mean it wasn't dull or anything i mean it was mm. probably you were properly in at the deep end and i was in dublin doing this and um and it was really life affirmative and i loved every second i've been in there but i knew not sure I can stay here. So anyway, I left. Was it the pilgrimage to Lourdes where you saw the shirtless men? The pilgrimage in Lourdes was also the part of this interim period when <laughs> I guess. I don't mean to sound trite, but I think it is, you know, it was it was um it was actually quite telling for you, wasn't it, that I can't 
I can't I can't live a life of of, of non sexual no sexual activity. And what, do you know, it wasn't even about. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was probably so repressed at that stage. It wasn't even about sex at that stage. It was just about fitting in and being accepted. That right. was probably the bigger deal, to be honest. So I went along to this trip to Lourdes, genuinely, and I don't say it, you know, some people get a lot from pilgrimages and stuff, and I think, you know, there's a lot of research in psychology saying that spirituality is a mega helpful thing, you know, for for a healthier life and a, a, a kind of calmer mind state. So I never knock spirituality if it works for people. Um, good. I still have a spirituality. I just don't believe in organised religion or churches. They don't work for, for me personally. But I went along in this pilgrimage, and um, and I 100% thought, you, you queue up to go in and um, there's a whole lot of people there and they ask you to think of your intention before you go in. I don't know if you've been or not, but they put you no. in like a little seat and no. you're literally immersed in like a swimming pool, but it's the water, the, this kind of blessed water. And they ask you to think... Holy water. Holy water. So they ask you to think about your intention. And I thought, oh, I want to be killed of this gay thing. And um, just as I had the thought that these two French guys, topless, in a pair of shorts, came over and they were the people who were at the side of you, dipping you into the water. And I can remember being totally, totally distracted by these two guys as I was being dipped into the water and just having this thought, fucking hell, I mean, if I'm looking at these guys as I'm being dipped into the water in Lourdes, there is absolutely no hope I mean this is just and I can remember genuinely something happening it was just like there was a moment of oh this is ridiculous and I think serendipity right it was a major major turning point because there was something about the ridiculousness of me (laughs) and um so then the irony of all of this was a mate of mine's and I was really starting to grapple with it and a mate of mine said you should go and talk to a therapist um this is like in my early 20s and give me a name of a person and he said her name's Kathleen my mum's name was Kathleen as well so I kind of think there was an automatic you know uh, appeal I thought oh, she, you know Kathleen I like that name it's completely stupid not a reason to pick a therapist because you like her name <laughs> <laughs> I, I went along and I get to this place and I remember I was given the address I'd contacted her had a brief chat on the phone and when I got there I was in a school and I thought, this is a bit weird. Maybe I'm at the wrong address. And I knocked in this door and this woman came to the door in a nun's outfit. And so I said to her, um, I'm looking for Kathleen. I'm here to see Kathleen. And she said, oh, you're at the right place. Come in. So I walked in thinking she was going to go and get someone else. And then she walked into the room and she said, hi, I'm Kathleen. And she shook hands. And I just remember having one of these. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm trying to come out. I'm going to speak to your therapist, but there was no plan to talk to an Irish Catholic nun. I mean, it was just like the one place I shouldn't have been. It was just like a bad fit. So anyway, I remember getting into bullshit. <laughs> and she started asking me all these questions. They, oh, how are you? And what, what brings you here? And I remember starting to go into this. Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Everything's fine. I'm fine. And she let me ramble on for about 20 minutes. And then she said to me, um, you keep telling me that you're fine. And I said, yeah. And she said, I'm just curious about why you're here. And I thought, oh, bloody hell, she's, you know, she's got me. And she said, I'm also curious that you keep telling me you're fine, but actually you look sad and you sound sad. And you know when someone corners you? With with, kindness. Yeah, and there was nowhere to go. And then suddenly I could feel this, like, like like a volcano of emotions because I had nowhere to run, basically. And 
she said, do you want to talk to me? What, you know, what's brought you here? And I said, well, I've got this bit of a secret and don't know how I'm going to manage it, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I still hemmed and ad about, will I, won't I, what do I say? And then eventually, and I said, look, I'm gay. And she just went really quiet. And then she said, is that it? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, I thought you were going to tell me something really terrible. <laughs> and, and that was brilliant, actually. It was another cathartic. Just that lack of judgment as well from the place that you would most expect it. So, you know, it was a perfect choice. And she turned out, you know, I always talk about her because she, she developed my interest in therapy and she was a brilliant therapist. So the first person you came out to was an Irish Catholic nun? Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's not how it should be. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of not... I mean, do you know, I think that probably epitomises my life, actually, because <laughs> nothing's, really, nothing's really evolved the way I thought it would or the way it probably should have done. I was saying to you earlier before we come on, you know, my entire energy and my whole early life was about keeping off radar. Mm. And no part, no part of my life where I had any desire to use a public platform, to be on social media, to do interviews. It, there was just no part of me desired or wanted that at any level. Um, and it's interesting then that this bizarre turn of events happened five years ago where the book opportunity came and almost inadvertently then, I wasn't forced, but there was an opportunity then to use the platform in a very, very different way, which meant that I had to almost go against the old version of me, which yeah. was tied. Um, and, and use this platform and actually, I guess really, it's, it's going to sound really cliched, but embrace all I'd learned over my life to date and make the decision to not only share that in the books and my work, but to, to encapsulate it all really into how I work and how I speak and what I do with people. And I think, so I'm now doing it and I'm actually getting much more comfortable doing it and enjoying it. But um, still have moments, you know, when I think, oh God, this, you know, I feel that angsty um, discomfort that will come up because it doesn't feel like a natural state to do it. But actually, this is going to sound odd, but it feels like I'm doing the right thing at this moment. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing at the moment. Which kind of takes us one to one of your major chords, which would be Mark, um, who has been such a cheerleader and so encouraging of you taking this step. His background is, Mark, for many years... Um, was was my boss at ITV. Uh, he was on the commissioning team there. He's a fantastic producer. He's a showrunner. He's you know he's there's, there's nothing he can't do in terms of producing great content. Let's call it content. And he saw that in you and showed you you could be this. Right, this is what you could be. And I'm encouraging you to do that. And kind of pushed you to do it. Um, do you think you would be where you are were it not for that steering hand of, of Mark Salmon? Definitely not. I mean, I think he, I mean, I guess his job was working with people all his career and... Getting the best out of them. A bit like you. Yeah, and yeah, getting the best out of people in different ways. And so when the opportunity came up to do the book, he said, I really think you should do this. And he knew that I, even though my, I, you know, I had a big career and I'd done well in my career, it never really pushed me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, I was a clinical lead in the NHS and I could run a big team, but I could do that well and I could do that comfortably. And I knew my job and I knew how to do it. Going out and pitching an idea, going out and opening a conference or doing a keynote, going out and go, or going on telly to promote your book or doing a podcast. None of that was natural. And he said, I think you've got an amazing opportunity here 
to you know to do your work but actually look at look at all those people out there who really struggle and he had said something to me a couple of years ago and he said you have a really brilliant way of making the complicated simple Mm-hmm. And he said to me, I think that's your USP. Now, I didn't even know what a USP was. So that just gives you a... unique <laughs> selling point. So he said, yeah, he said, that, that's what you do well. You can make the complicated very simple and you do it in a way that's very relatable. And because you've got a story, I really think you should do it. So he did push me and encourage me a lot. And even with How to Be Your Own Therapist, I acknowledge him in that because he really did. Because I wanted to break the stigma of, I believe everybody should have a therapist if they can. I think it's like having a PT, you know, most of us crash land into adulthood, not being, you know, with no idea how to manage the big emotions, no idea how to manage difficult thoughts, Mm. no idea how to navigate our way through the ups and downs where most of us are not taught that stuff growing up. So I think most people would benefit working with somebody just to make sense of it all and to to get to know that 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 voice. But it's a luxury that so many can't access or afford, right? So, and that was why I said, I'm going to write the book. That's why I want to do this book. That's why it's really important. And that was the motivation behind that book. And 10 to 10 was exactly the same. I mean, the motivation for that came from, there's a brilliant story with that actually. I was in the NHS and um, I was doing an anxiety group. So it was a group of people who were really chronically anxious and they'd been through all sorts of treatment. And we had devised this program for them. And to be fair, some of them were making really good headway. And this woman came up to me at the end of the group one day and she said, this is really helping me and I'm getting a lot from it. She said, but all of this stuff about meditation and breathing and all of that stuff, she said, I get it, but I haven't got 45 minutes a day to do it. I just haven't. I've got two kids. My husband's Mm -hmm. a boozer. I work two jobs. She said, give me 10 minutes and I'll do the 10 minutes, but I can't do. And I remember then, you know, when you have a moment in life, something drops and you think, Light bulb. There's something in that moment. Yeah, yeah, it was a light bulb moment. And I said, wouldn't it be great to come up with something? So then when I started to do a bit more private work in corporates, I was teaching this technique of what would it be like using psychology and neuroscience? What would it be like to take 10 minutes out of your day to quieten the noise, to manage the chaos, to just feel more grounded and centered in your life? And 10 minutes was a, a unique selling point because nobody had done 10 minutes at that point. But I felt it was the right thing to do and again he pushed me on that he said let's do this let's you know go for the meeting go and pitch the idea so I think part of me would have if I'm being honest about it part of me probably would have if I if I hadn't met Mark I'm sure I probably I'm not sure but I I'm more likely to have gone the more comfortable route yeah to be fair and yeah. I think he would probably argue he may have gone a more comfortable route at some points in his career. You're, you're a formidable team, the two of you. We're good together. You know, like he, he's a good guy and he's down to earth. He's, you know. Oh, listen, he's more than a good guy. He's utterly, he's, he's utterly decent. And, and that in itself is quite a rare trait in the world of television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He stands out for that alone. <laughs> what was great, though, is that he understood the commercial opportunities that sat here you never went after the money but he and and I'm not saying for one minute that Mark did but he was unable to understand that hey I tell you what you know you can achieve you know you can take somebody from a a state of anxiety to zen in 10 minutes people will buy buy that people will pay for that especially if it's priced at 10 pounds the cost you know the cost of a book right he understood that so he he gave you the encouragement to say there's something here there's a there's a pot go and fill it and it was something you you were really good at doing it enabled you to shine and I think 
when people bought that book and understood that actually, God, this actually works. You know, I'm getting something from this. That is a brilliant way of taking them. It's, it's like if it's like you're saying holding on to hope, right? They got the hope from that book. I really hope now that that will encourage them to pick up um, your third book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, because if you can't afford therapy every week, this is a great way to start learning how to practice it on yourself in in the best way possible i think so and i i, I do believe you, you can, look your, your goal as a therapist is to you know certainly my goal and i'm sure most good therapists your goal is by you you don't want to keep people my goal is never to keep people for a long period of time i've got zero interest in working with people for extended periods because i think you can create dependency and i think you can disempower people now not all of the time there are exceptions where somebody might need more elongated therapy because they're working through big stuff but i think most people need guidance and support most people just need a bit of a helping hand or an understanding mm. hard to manage some of the more difficult dynamics and i think you know look the way i see it most people have a story in their life and they have stuff that was difficult and i think there's a danger sometimes you know there's all either i think that it's time to talk on Thursday or something that you know the yearly campaign thing and I often argue that good therapy isn't just about talking because I think there's the right type of talking and the wrong type of talking and I think say for example someone's depressed or really struggling with their mood the instinct and the you know the kind of the desire will be to go in to come in and splurge and talk and talk and talk and ruminate over and over and over again and one of the dangers with that is that even though it might feel useful to get it off your chest and in the first instance that might be a useful thing to do but if someone gets stuck there and they're on a loop repeating the same stuff over and over and over again then actually they get stuck and you don't help them I think the other side of the coin, and if somebody's incredibly anxious and they're coming to therapy seeking reassurance from you and you buy into it and you start colluding with the reassurance seeking, then you keep them stuck. So I think good therapy is about skill conversations, about stopping somebody from ruminating and actually helping to break the pattern of anxiety. It's really interesting that. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Actually, this takes us really nicely uh, into a question from a listener. So are you okay if we dive into some of the many questions that have been sent your way? One of the questions that we had in for you was, um, can you be in therapy for too long? And how do you, how long do you need to be in therapy for it to work? I mean, how long is a piece of string? I think it's very much... Like, to give you context, if I'm working... Th- 
therapeutically. And I still have a clinic. I, I, that's the one part of my work I won't give up. I still have a clinic where I see people. But I work with people in blocks of 10. And, and I'll start off with a block of 10. And of course, it's open to review. But the reason I do that, and not all therapists work this way, is it gives someone a focus at the beginning. And if I say, I'm going to work with you for the next 10 weeks, then we have a really clear trajectory. We've got a really clear plan on what we're going to cover in that 10 weeks. Whereas I think sometimes when people come in and it's just left open-ended, there is the risk and the danger that it just becomes a place to come and let stuff go. But for me, good therapy isn't just about a conversation. It's it's how you manage your thoughts. It's how you deal with the emotional states. It's the people you surround yourself with. It's the boundaries you create in your life. It's the decisions you make. It's the actions. It's the behavior. It's all like good therapy is a complete revamp of your life. And that's so it's I- not something that you've got to find um, in endless resources for. It's about, I mean, 10, 10 sessions, that's 10 hours. That's 10 hours of you helping somebody to ultimately help themselves. That's that's what therapy is. It may not be enough for some people, so don't get me wrong. I'm not... Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. But as, as a general general guide, that's how you tend to... That's what you ask of people. That's what that's, that's where we... That's the kind of the benchmark. And certainly in how to be your own therapist, I mean, I go a different direction. I, you know, the first half of the book is like a crash course in therapy, under understanding who you are, like putting the jigsaw together what's happening you know most of our reactions in the everyday world most of the stuff that we get pissed off about or we react to has got very little to what's going on in the here and now most of it is old stuff been triggered well that takes me very nicely to another listener question this is from louise um she says i mean i'm caught in the past reliving it every day how do i break the cycle this has been wearing me down for 16 years can you help I mean, look, it's it, it's a common it's a common question, and without knowing the context, it's difficult. You know, whatever whatever that event in the past was, um, it needs to be processed or you know dealt with. Frankly, I mean, people often say, "What does process mean?" It means you're dealing with it. So, if you think if if this was a, tra- a traumatic incident, for example, um, tra- trauma that isn't processed or dealt with sits in the wrong part of the brain. Now, I'm not going to get too neuroscientific here, but basically, um, trauma memories when they're not processed or dealt with tend to sit on the right brain. Okay, um, and our right brain tends to be that part of the brain where anxiety and you know the amygdala, so you kind of get that threat stimulus. So very often when you hear about PTSD or people who have got unresolved trauma, that kind of being unable to let go means that actually they're still holding on to that trauma, and it often means that they've got a very active right brain. So it's kind of almost like the threat is as real today as it was back at the time. Gosh, and that's a horrible state of fear and anxiety to be living in, right? And that's simply, I mean, mechanics of that, you know, people often say, oh, just let it go. That's easier said than done. If it's trauma, for example, you need to deal with the trauma, you need to process it, you need to work through that so that you can let it go. And then the premise is that the, the memory then goes to the kind of more left brain, the hippocampus, which is like a library. And what they do, the memory then goes there, it's put into library, it doesn't mean that it goes away and that you got rid of it, but it means that it's there. It's Do you know what it is? It's moving out of the hallway and into the loft. So you're not walking past it every day. Absolutely. And it doesn't need to be in the driving seat of your life. It doesn't need to yeah. be dominating your life every day. And so I think very often, you know, I think for most people, I, I talk about tall T traumas, which are the big, the big life traumas, but many, many, many people have the smaller T traumas, which can be that, you know, your dad told you you weren't good enough. Or someone told you you were too fat, or a teacher called you stupid at school, or the kids ignored you, whatever, you know, and, and they, they might sound like 
silly childhood things that but this stuff can land, particularly in childhood years, it can land and stick. And it becomes it's never, defining. It just yeah. And then people then begin to believe that as a truth. So I think yeah. that's part of the letting go is actually remembering that whatever you're holding on to, no matter how difficult it is, it doesn't need to define your life as it is today so so make you know and obviously that's one of the things I cover in the book you know let, letting go of this stuff and the importance of letting go but firstly you need to be willing to face it absolutely and I tell you Louise from my own experiences when I have revisited you know old pain in my adult life so when you go back to you know for, for me it was adolescence um it was really interesting for me to to process something that I told myself was X, but was absolutely Y. I mean, actually, I'd almost rewritten the narrative around what had happened to me in those teenagers as a coping mechanism, but in no way actually reflected the truth of the matter. And by going back and dealing with it and looking at it for what it actually was, rather than what I've told myself it was, I was able to stick it up in the loft and I've not really gone back to it ever since, rather than constantly tripping it over it in my own sort of, you know, psychological hallway, if you like. Sorry, far too many analogies. There's a brilliant point there. Somebody said to me years ago in in my, because we have to have therapy, as therapist, it's part, it's part of the deal. Really. Mm. I think it's a really sensible part of the deal that most therapists should have therapy. because The whole it, time you're studying, you're in weekly therapy. Yeah, but even yeah. as a practitioner, I'm in therapy. I always have been. I, you know, I, I'll occasionally take gaps, you know, if I've got other stuff going on, but I generally like to be in therapy. And my own therapist recently, a couple of years ago, actually made an observation about... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I do this work and, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, looking after yourself and self-care, you know, all the kind of cliched concepts that we, we hear going around. And um, and he was challenging me on something. I was a bit overwhelmed and I'd, I'd taken on too much and I was really struggling. And he said to me, well, what's going on with the self-care stuff? And we started having a conversation about what that looked like. And um, he said to me, what, what, what drives your self-care? What's it all driven by? And I had to really stop and think about it. And it was all driven by a need to function mm. and a need to cope and, and a need to keep going. And he said, can you see the challenge in that there? If all of your self-care motivation is about keeping going and staying afloat and managing. He said, what about self-care because, you know, you're deserving of it. And this totally different ballgame altogether. And I do this for a living. This is my bread and butter. This is my work. And it's really interesting how you can fall into that trap of actually going back to the the essence of, you know, here's the thing. I say this at every talk I give. You, You can speak to somebody. I could speak all day about this stuff. I could get up and give a talk and I could give thousands of tips and techniques and insights and all of that stuff. And in my experience over the years, none of it, and I mean none of it matters unless somebody is willing to talk to themselves and treat themselves as someone who matters. And I think unless people get that right, then every technique, every meditation, every therapist, every retreat you go on, it's utterly pointless unless you're willing. But you need self-worth for that. And that's quite often what will take people to therapy in the first place is a lack of it. Absolutely. But it's interesting how people will often deviate yeah. And they will want to focus on other things. I want to improve my relationship. 
I want to do better at work. I want to achieve this. I want to feel better about myself. That's all great and totally understandable. But until you're willing to talk and treat yourself as someone who matters, none of that matters. So there you go. I mean, that, that, that works back as a piece of advice to everybody, really. Just start from that place, which is a place of self-worth, right? That's the first thing that you could do before you even go and see a therapist is actually start speaking to yourself like you matter. I challenge, you know, and people often get, do get a bit, oh, that's easier said than done. So you normally do get pushback, don't get me wrong. But the other way I'll put it to people is if they're resisting or they're pushing back, I'll say to them, would you speak to someone else the way you're you speaking speak to yourself, yourself at the moment? Mm. You know, would you go up to your best friend or a family member and say, you're a fucking idiot. Look at you, yeah. you're stupid, you're ugly, you're not good enough. You, you, and, and they'll say, of course I wouldn't. Well, why wouldn't you do that? Well, because it would destroy them. Well, then that's exactly what you're doing to yourself. You're destroying yourself. What makes that okay? And most people can't really run from that because then it's like, well, why am I doing this to myself? That's an undeniable oh. truth, right? Yeah, it's hard, really hard. And mm. that's like, and that is good therapy. You're, you are holding up a mirror and saying, I'm not going to change this stuff. If you're, if you're going to keep doing this, then of course it's going to continue, but you have a choice. You don't have to keep doing it. And that is a key thing that, you know, none of us have to keep doing the old stuff. We don't have to hold on to these behaviours that don't serve us well. Um, another question for you from Anne. One simple exercise to cope with worry and anxiety, please. One simple exercise. I think, I mean, I with, with anybody who's struggling with anxiety, I use a technique. Well, I want to premise it by, because I, I don't want to kind of undermine anxiety, because I think it's important as a general rule, anxiety for most people starts in the body, okay? So even though it's often described as a cognitive process because it's worry-driven and there's a lot of thoughts, most people's anxiety is held in their body somewhere. And some of the more new, recent neuroscience shows is that when you're holding anxiety in the body, you know, say it was your chest, your stomach, your throat, you know, you're in that hell tense state, that immediately sends a message to the brain that you're in a state of alarm. Mm. And when the brain believes you're in a state of alarm, your prefrontal cortex will, that's the kind of part that can be more rational, more measured, more level. That part shuts down momentarily because it believes there's an emergency. So when you're dealing with anxiety in general, you know, my advice is always start with the body. Deactivate the sense of threat in the body with whatever techniques that work for you. Because when you deactivate the sense of threat in the body, that will immediately send a message to the, mind, the the brain that you're not in a state of alarm and you can then access the rational brain. So is that when you would start to um, employ things like breathing practices or tapping or CBT? Or, or, or any of that sort of stuff. So it's grounding techniques. So it could be breath. It could be... It could be tapping. I, you know, for people who, you know, because sometimes people think, oh, this is a bit woo-woo, this is a bit, and this is not for me. I'm not into meditation. I'm not into breathing or whatever. A really powerful thing is that repeating the mantra. The neuroscience in that is really powerful. You know, you just mm -hmm. repeat a phrase over and over and over again. It could be like, I am calm, I am strong. You keep repeating it. Every time you get distracted, you come back to the mantra, you repeat it and you repeat it. And what we know is that that really reduces the activity in the mind it really helps settle the body and it helps level so these complicated these are not complicated techniques but in terms of then dealing with the, the overwhelm and the worry i get people to every client i work with if they're anxious or worried i get them to i teach them how to relax the body in the first instance but i get them to write down um okay tell me the 15 things you're worried about in your life at the minute 
I'm without fail. I've never had anyone not able to give me 15. <laughs> and they're, like, they're just instantaneously, they're there. And they're like, yeah, they're just like, it's, it's rapid fire. They can give you the 15 worries. And then we, we'll, we'll sit and we look at the worries and I'll say, okay, of these 15 worries, you know, which are, you know, any, are any of these directly in your control at the moment? And then most people then go through the list and say, okay, those that are not directly in your control, we're going to put them to the side. So most people are left with about two, one, sometimes that they can maybe take one action towards resolving or moving forward a bit. The rest are just genuinely, you know, you are not going to sort out climate change today. You're not going to sort out the economy. You're not going to sort out the government. You're not going to sort out the state of the education system or the health system. You know, they can be broader worries, but then it could be my husband ignores me. He behaves badly. You're probably not going to sort that out either, you know, because he, he's going to have to make the changes. So you're giving people permission to make a decision what they can park. But you're also simplifying what they're catastrophizing about so yeah. that they actually have a, a greater perspective. So you're giving them perspective, really. It's all about perspective, but it's actually about reducing burden because when somebody's in an anxious state, they believe in that moment that they have to deal with all of the worries. Yeah, yeah, you do. I also um, I also think that, you know, sometimes when we talk about breathing or tapping or all of these things that you can do when, you're, when you can feel a panic attack coming on, sometimes if you're in company or in a meeting or on a Zoom call or, I don't know, you know, it's just, you know, sat on a bus... Um, you might feel very self-conscious doing that. I always used to, in the moments of, of stress, I used to just hum, right? And I would hum very low, yeah. uh, a very low hum, and then I would try to speak. And what it does is it just sucks all of the anxiety out of your chest. Yeah. So if you just did a low level, like, and then you try to speak, you just can't speak quickly. It just slows you. And it's yeah. such a quick hack. Or that other thing I talk about in 10 to 10, you know, that bilateral stimulation. Yeah. You can do it in the upper arms or you can do it in your thighs or people yeah. can even tap their feet. But even that, the, the founder of EMDR, which is a trauma therapy, <clears throat> she discovered, you know, we use rapid eye movements if you're using EMDR for trauma therapy. But the founder of that discovered, she went out for a walk one day and something was bothering her and she discovered that she felt better at the end of the walk. And she made the connection that that left-right movement helped her regulate and if you mm -hmm. think about what's happening in a time of anxiety or stress, it's kind of like dysregulation. So you're yeah. trying to get the brain into a state of balance and equilibrium. So even that, you know, like if I'm worried about something or I'm, if I'm doing something big and, you know, as you say, like you're not going to, if I'm about to go on and do a big corporate gig or I'm going to speak at a big conference and I suddenly get a moment of feeling a bit nervous, it's going to be hard to like sit down and do a full meditation, you know, in, in that moment that might look a bit weird. Um, but you can use these really, you know, small techniques for, you know, even that kind of four, five, eight breathing technique. I'm sure yeah, you so good. In for four, hold for five, release for eight. That can kind of help regulate very quickly. But even that just slow taps left to right. Or just write it down. Sometimes what I've done is you write, I write something down. I say, right, in two hours, I'm going to worry about this. It's worrying me now, but I'm, I'm, for two hours, I'm going to step away from it. And in two hours, I'm going to come back to worrying about this fundamentally mostly within two hours your head is somewhere else yeah you've forgotten so all you've done is park it yeah yeah exactly. and and you've given yourself a little bit of respite and then perspective kicks in yeah and, yeah. That, and that's that's that that's the truth for most people actually it's kind of i guess all of this stuff is about getting less engaged 
Mm. And the content, you know, most people get immersed in their world and the thoughts and what's happening and they believe that voice to be true. You know, these thoughts that we have and there are many, there are about 80,000 thoughts a day, 70% of them negative or critical in nature. So, you know, that's that's a lot of content going around people's head. And Yeah, the maths is quite overwhelming. Jeez. Yeah, but the art form is that ability to be able to say, okay, this is just these are just old patterns that I don't need to engage with. And I, I think even as well, it's really helpful rather than getting into, um, I'm thinking that, you know, if you and I were thinking today, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster, this interview. It's not about getting into the detail of what's happened. It's just like, oh, there's my catastrophizing or there's my judgment or there's my critic or there's my minimalizing. Whatever your patterns are, you kind of just name them generally rather than get caught up in the content mm. and then making that decision to pull back and think, all right, I don't need to necessarily go down that road. That can be really powerful for some people just not to, just to see it for what it is. You know, it's yeah. just a pattern. You don't need to get immersed in the detail because you've done it a million times before and it's never led to any useful outcome. Just find what works for you, right? Yeah. Um, Ellie's been in touch. She says, is it possible to get better from CPTSD? And what is the best treatment? Well, first of all, could you tell me what CPTSD is? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I don't like the definition of chronic PTSD because PTSD is PTSD. Mm. Um, an event could have happened to somebody three months ago and they could have PTSD. You never get it in them. It never happens instantaneously for most people, you know, because there's always going to be a an initial reaction and a degree of shock and adjusting and all of that stuff. You normally really don't know for a few months whether someone's got... PTSD, but that could have been three months ago, six months ago. It could have been an event 20 years ago. So I personally think it's less helpful to, to think of it as chronic. PTSD is PTSD. So if, if the trauma isn't resolved, the symptoms will play out over and over and over again. So the symptom, I think most people get confused because the symptoms, you know, the flashbacks, the rumination, the intrusion, mm. the hypervigilance, the avoidance, the anxiety, the, redu- you know, the, you know, the mood reduction, these are all kind of normal symptoms for someone who's got PTSD. So people feel that that's never going to go away because, you know, it keeps coming back. But the reason it keeps coming back is that the trauma hasn't been resolved. So the answer the is answer yes, is you can yes, get better. Hundred percent. I mean, you can get better if you can if you can get face to face with the trauma and resolve the trauma. The symptoms drop off. Um, final listener question. Uh, this one: What if I don't click with the first therapist I meet? Um, should I keep going? And I really feel strongly about this because. I don't think anybody should confuse um, the idea that therapy doesn't work with me with the fact that a therapist wasn't the right person for them. Um, and and I, it really worries me that people have um, one bite of the apple, it doesn't work, and then they just they walk away and go, well, I, I tried therapy, it didn't work. No, you just didn't find the right it's, person. It's, it's a good point. I, like, I think a, a good question, if, if you go to your therapist and you make a decision that they're not right for you, you don't like them, I think the follow-up question has to be, what was it about them that you didn't like? Mm. Or what was it about the process that you didn't like? And if someone goes in and, you know, and they say like, oh, they didn't listen to me or I don't think they got me or they didn't understand me or I just genuinely didn't trust them or I didn't feel a connection and they weren't the right person for me, then it could be that that may be a valid enough reason to think actually just, it's a bit like we don't like everyone we meet. That's human nature. Or we don't. And if you don't feel comfortable with somebody, you're not going to give the best of yourself in that hour. So 
wait until it, it's a bit like dating I would say you've got to know when it feels right absolutely but there is a premise here what I would say if the reason if you come away after one session and you say oh, what you know what what didn't go well and you say well they made me feel uncomfortable or they challenged me and I didn't like what they had to yeah. say I would say maybe you need to go back yeah because by the way therapy shouldn't be comfortable it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel like it's not it's not like some fluffy pat on the back it's not a massage no it, it's definitely not a it's massage. called working on yourself the focus is on the work word <laughs> barbaric it shouldn't be but actually no if, equally if of course that feels lovely all of the time then you're probably not doing much real work because the bottom line is if you're getting to the real stuff you're going to be presented with stuff that's not easy and uncomfortable to be around and a good therapist will support you and get you through that and work with you and hold you and be able to to work through the stuff with you but that doesn't mean that it'll feel easy and it doesn't mean as well it's like I know when I piss my clients off like and I know when I do and I know when I've got to an area where I they're really wanting to say I wonder would you fuck off mm-hmm. you know because I've gone somewhere and you you feel that tension in the room and you know that they're they're really angry with you because of what you're bringing to the table but I mean that's your job as a therapist to be able yeah. to to manage that transference in the room and then well, you able- wouldn't be angry at a PT if they you know left you with tight muscles the day after a really good workout oh, I was you don't- <laughs> <laughs> I had a PT once and I broke my teeth I was doing press-ups and and I said that my arm really hurt. And he said, no, 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 you can do it. I said, no, honestly, I can't. And anyway, I couldn't. And I kind of went down onto a bar and I broke three of my front teeth. Right. Well, okay, I'll take that back then. It's okay, that dispels that, that theory. <laughs> um, before I let you go, I've got one final question for you, if you would indulge me, Owen. Your final question. As a palliative care nurse, what did helping the living to die teach you about living and what wisdom can we find in the hindsight of others? I mean, there are are so many ways I can answer that question. I I guess ultimately, if I were to answer in a really succinct way, is nothing matters as much as you think it does. That 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 was the real thing, really. And also, you know... People often talk about, you know, the privilege of the work really was when you were, particularly when you're working in hospices or in in general hospitals, and often you would be doing night duties and stuff. And the real conversations often happened at like three o'clock in the morning Mm. when you were sat with somebody having a cup of tea and it was less busy and they couldn't sleep and they were starting to, you know, process and think about stuff. And often those stories, you know, you know, that, that kind of line, if I had my time again, you know, that, that just came up over and over and over again. If I had my time again, or if I had more time. So I, I lost track of the number of times people said that in one, you know, one way, shape or form. And that was always really, really interesting because it was always really simple stuff, you know. And, you know, you'd see people who had really big lives and success and money and all of these things. And it was always back to the real simple stuff. You know, I would have spent more time with the family. I wouldn't have worked as much. I wouldn't have cared as much about the things that I really got bothered by. Um, I would treat people better. I heard that a lot. Wow. I regrets. I would treat people better than I did. And I would let people know that they mattered to me because I didn't do that enough. So they were kind of core themes that come up over and over and over again. But the theme really was around simplicity, that most people, when you were having kind of detailed conversations with them, were able to acknowledge that they'd often 
tied themselves up in knots in their own lives. And I think that is a real, we all do this, don't we? I mean, it's very easy to blame life on our struggle. Yeah. We, we do it. It's a natural human thing to say it's because he did that, she did that, that didn't happen, this did happen. I wanted it to be, it should have been. But actually, who ever said any of this should have been? So we're, we're often in battle with life and what it delivers. When actually, I think what, what, what the lessons were that were taught to me over those 10 years were actually there is real value in not resisting. And there's real value in keeping it simple. And that doesn't mean that you're defeated or that you become passive in your own life. But it means that you you learn to kind of, okay, this is what life has presented me at the moment. May not have been my choice. May not have been what I thought it was going to be. I would Maybe I wanted it to be a bit different. But actually, maybe if I'm willing to work with it and trust, really, that it will evolve as it's meant to and it should do, there's real power and freedom in that. And I know we read about this stuff and you hear it in TED Talks and various books and various stuff. But I think when you've got people telling you, no, 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 this stuff's true because I wasn't doing it and now I've realised I've got limited time left and I've now the coins dropped. And so there would often be a real enthusiasm for them to share with you, you know, and they would often ask you, it was often fascinating, they would often want to know what you were up to, you know, in your own life, what you do, and you're going on holiday. You know, if you were going on holiday and say, um, Book another holiday. Don't you know? Get away. Don't don't delay on that stuff. You know, make make the best of time. One of the most interesting memories I have is I looked after a young guy once, and um, he was I was in the community, and I think he was about 24, 25. So young. And, and he he was young, and he had limited time. He had weeks to live when I was working with him. And his only goal when I went to see him, it was really interesting. I was chosen to go to him in the community, and he wasn't even in my catchment area. But the manager of the team thought I would be a good fit for this guy and yeah I could see what her rationale was when I met him so when when I got into him he was a typical young guy 24 25 and when I went in he said I I don't want any heavy conversations about death he said I only need two things from you he said I need you to get my pain a bit more controlled and he said secondly my mates are taking me to Amsterdam in two weeks and and I need you to get me steady enough to go on this trip to Amsterdam and that was that was his goal that's all he wanted and so my work with him for those couple of weeks was to, to kind of try and get his symptoms controlled but actually this trip to Amsterdam was the most important thing in the world for him now of course as I got to know him the the desire and the want and the, you know the the plans for Amsterdam were a bit were a bit scary and it was but come on you're you know you're not in a good state here and your health isn't but it was important to him so it was about learning to work with his agenda not me dictating the agenda no no maybe you shouldn't mm-hmm. go maybe you should stay at home this really mattered to him anyway he went to, he got to Amsterdam oh. and he came back with a list of stories you know some of them. <laughs> Some of them you couldn't share or repeat, but let's just, let's just say he had a pretty incredible three days in Amsterdam and he lived fully, you know, and I went to see him and he died two days later. Um, but the thing about that story, and I'm always reminded, I often think about him over the years, and this was a long time ago, was that what was important for him was to live as a 24-year-old would live. Mm. It became, you know, really did become about living for him and not complicating it and doing what a 24-year-old would do and spending time and partying and having fun and extracting as much as he could from life 
in that period and he did and he died and he died very comfortably in the end and I often think about that story because I think that is a lesson for us all really about what we extract from the lives we've been given I also think you know sometimes we we have you know if you'd have spoken to the majority of people at the end of the last lockdown as we were allowed to go and visit people again and eat at the same table and breathe the same air we were just happy with that that's the stuff we missed in lockdown was the really simple stuff yep um, I wonder how many of us, and I include myself in that, um, are really valuing that to this day. It's a, it's a, it's a good point. And, I, and I, sadly, I think a lot of people, it's kind of almost like it didn't happen. Mm. And I kind of feel like, I think we, 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 I think we kind of crashed out of lockdowns, didn't we? And then the world presented a whole lot of other stuff. So I, I still argue that uh, I don't think that's really processed. Been yeah. I agree. I think it's a bit like don't talk about the war. Yeah, yeah. It's in, and I'm and I'm and I'm not in any way comparing a pandemic to a war. I'm just comparing the fact that after the war, when people had lived through something for so long, they just didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to get on with the next stage of life and living. And I think that's that's I very think the, I true. Think the evidence is in the sort of if you look at the stats and you look at what's happening broadly with mental health and if you look particularly at mental health with kids mm. how problematic that is at the moment and like there there is no shortage of evidence showing that kids are struggling at the moment more than we've seen in a long time so i think there is evidence there that that couple of years has impacted quite significantly there's a hangover there, there's sure. a massive hangover and i don't think it's a short hangover i do think we've got a good few years to go long tail yeah I mean, thank you for coming on. It's it's been lovely to have you. Thank you so much. I and I, you know, I hope. Look, you know, even if one line or one aspect of this conversation resonates or makes someone think, then we, we've we've done our job. So thank you so much for having me on. It's been my absolute pleasure. If you want to buy Owen's latest book, uh, How to Be Your Own Therapist, it's available alongside his other two. Uh, at all good bookshops as always you can uh, of course order them online but if you live near to a local bookstore um do a good thing go and buy it from there they really appreciate it Uh, thanks so much to Owen O'Kane for sharing so many pearls of wisdom. I'll be back with another brand new guest. I know we're spoiling you this week on Friday. I'll see you then. Remember that you can always find us on Instagram. So go follow us at whitewine underscore question time. And also please hit the follow button on Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. White Wine Pression Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.